Hi everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. The case I'm telling you about this week has been called gruesome. It's been labeled violent, cold and calculated, abnormal. Those who know of its brutality often say that they wouldn't wish it on their very worst enemy. The perpetrator, in the words of certain investigators, must have been heartless, soulless, or even demonic to commit such an act, an act designed to make one suffer. Those who were present that night of December 6, 2014, they've said, usually while crying or tearing up, that they'd never seen anything like it. But when I think about the murder of Jessica Chambers, the word that comes to mind for me is simply horrific. In a way, murder seems quaint in comparison to what exactly Jessica Chambers suffered through. Somehow, murder doesn't encompass the viciousness, the legitimate savagery that befell her. The story of Jessica Chambers is one that is truly terrifying because like so many people have remarked about it, what could a 19-year-old girl have done in order for someone to purposely set her on fire? If you're of a delicate constitution, consider this introduction your trigger warning for this entire episode. Because this week, we really are getting dark as hell. When it comes to understanding who Jessica Chambers was, there's a word I associated with her all throughout my research. Bubbly. Her friends and family described the 19-year-old as sassy, feisty, and a sweetheart. Her mother, Lisa Chambers, said that she was, quote, full of light, just a joy. She had a bright pink bedroom and a whole station set up beside her bed for her collection of makeup and other beauty products. Jessica was known to flash the American Sign Language sign for I love you frequently, in photos, in greeting, and especially when saying goodbye. You could expect to see Jessica's hand in her customary formation, pinky and forefinger straight up to the sky, middle and ring finger bent down, and her thumb sticking out as well. I love you. She could be stubborn, and in her tiny hometown of Cortland, Mississippi, even she went through a rebellious stage, as most teenagers do. At the end of the day, though, one of her friends said Jessica was simply, quote, just such a good person. She was a little slip of a thing, by all accounts. Her mother said that she was, quote, 90 pounds on a good day, which made her the perfect candidate for the local high school cheerleading team's flyer, along with her blonde hair and blue-eyed features. A former cheerleader in the Deep South, a true Bible Belt town. That was Jessica on the surface. But to also understand Jessica, you have to dig a little deeper, dig into her roots and the roots of her hometown. Cortland, Mississippi, according to the census taken in 2010, is home to 511 people total. That's about the size of my high school graduating class 
plus a quarter of another class, to put that into some perspective. According to A.J. Price, Jessica's half-sister, quote, most everybody knows everybody when it comes to Cortland. Jessica's parents, Lisa and Ben, had divorced years before, and Ben had remarried a woman named Debbie. There seemed to be a decent amount of friendship and camaraderie between the mixed family, enough so that even following the divorce, the whole Chambers family lived on the same street of Carlisle Road, with Ben and Lisa only a few houses away from each other. The town adheres to all sorts of labels of its own. Bible Belt, Mississippi Delta, Blue Collar, Football Country. Farming and agriculture were the main ways of making a dollar, though a significant portion of the town lived below the poverty line. The population was, in 2010, 64.5% white and 35.5% black. But by 2014, most residents claimed that it seemed to have become predominantly black. And to further understand Jessica and just what happened to her, we also have to talk about race and how race played out throughout this story and through the streets of Cortland itself. Because as one resident put it, quote, race is strong here. Though she didn't elaborate how exactly race is strong, it's not hard to discern her meaning. For instance, Cortland is said to have the highest church per capita ratio in the entire state of Mississippi. But come Sunday morning, after everyone had gone to a football game together on Saturday night, maybe, one townsperson explained that the, quote, whites go to the white church and the blacks go to the black church. It's just how it's done. As Otis Griffin, the chief deputy of neighboring Coahoma County, put it, quote, they take racism here and they cover it up with certain niceties. Things have changed a little bit, but it's still the same. Otis Griffin, it should be noted, is black himself. A small town of just 500 souls in Mississippi, deep in the Delta Bible Belt, and steeped in covert racism. This was the place where Jessica Chambers was born, raised, and where she died. Jessica was really only around 15 or 16 when she hit her rebellious stage, the time when her mother said, quote, things went downhill. She acted out on occasion at this time, doing typical dumb teenager shit, classic DTS, if you will. She was caught with marijuana a few times, and she was known to smoke pretty frequently. Admittedly, some of her friends at the time weren't of the best influences either. What wasn't necessarily DTS, though, at all, was who she dated, though it did cause problems for her at home. Because Jessica was known to date black guys, and neither of her parents were out and out accepting of that. It was reported by BuzzFeed that Jessica, quote, often told people flat out that her mother was racist. Her mother, Lisa, denies that and says that she didn't approve of one of Jessica's relationships because she thought it was, quote, volatile, and that Brian Rudd, Jessica's former black boyfriend in question, just wasn't fit to take good care of her daughter. Jessica's father, Ben Chambers, though, he didn't exactly mince words when it came to how he felt about his daughter dating people of color. Speaking to Oxygen for the documentary Unspeakable Crime, The Murder of Jessica Chambers, Ben said he doesn't, quote, 
believe in mixed relationships. He clarifies, though, that he's, quote, not a racist. Instead, it's, quote, just the way I was growed up. One of Jessica's friends, a man named George Mister, who goes by Boone, claims that the relationship between Jessica and her father was definitively bad because of the fact that she dated black men. In Boone's words, quote, she was looking for love, and we, the black community, embraced her. She was lost. And she would only become more lost because in 2012, when Jessica was about 17, the family suffered a devastating blow. In early May of that year, 28-year-old Ben Allen Chambers, who went by Ben and was Jessica's older half-brother, he died unexpectedly in a car accident. The two had been particularly close, and it said that the death was, quote, horrible for Jessica. Her mother said that after Allen died, it was like, quote, Jessica lost a part of herself. It was here that the race for Jessica's life to get even further downhill sped up. She started hanging out with a new group of friends in her grief, ones who encouraged Jessica to skip school only to smoke the day away. It's been said that around this time is when her dabbling into drugs took off, as did her new practice of selling drugs. She quit her beloved cheerleading, and on top of that, she dropped out of South Panola High School after Christmas of her senior year. Her father took her car in a bid to keep her from just, quote, riding around with these so-called friends and to limit her exposure to them, but it didn't do much good. Instead, she just kept, quote, going deeper and deeper into these destructive habits. It was said that during this time, two of Jessica's former boyfriends were part of gangs when she dated them, and it seems that, as the girlfriend of gang members, she herself became labeled one because of her supposed affiliation. It was in June 2014 that things finally seemed to catch up with Jessica as she and her choices slid further downhill. That month, she was arrested for simple assault, and in her mugshot for the charge, you can see a distinctly different girl than the bubbly, fun-loving cheerleader that she had once been. Her expression is dour, her mouth a straight, unhappy line. Her right eye is swollen, a puffy, dark purple bruise, no doubt from the assault, was making its ugly presence known on her face. After her arrest, Jessica finally realized that she needed to change, that she, quote, wanted to make her life better, as her sister AJ put it. It was a decision that she made and one that would be the stepping stone to rebuilding her life and climbing back up the hill to the version of the life that she wanted for herself. That summer, Jessica spent the next two months at Leah's house in South Haven, Mississippi. Leah's house is essentially a Christian rehabilitation center for women. Their mission statement claims that, quote, our ministry helps women ages 18 and over who have been incarcerated deal with addictions, behavioral problems, self-harm, depression, and others. It is our goal to provide a comprehensive biblical foundation. It's located about 45 minutes away from Cortland and really helped to, quote, get her away, as one of Jessica's aunts put it. The experience couldn't have been better for her. Jessica's time at Leah's house is said to have inspired her. And when she returned back to Corlin, it was, quote, like her whole personality changed. She changed back into her happy, go lucky, positive, and yes, bubbly self. 
The wild child with the rebel streak was gone. Jessica, in the eyes of her old friends, she'd moved on from that. She got herself a job that she was proud of. She spoke about going to college and her dreams of becoming a nurse. And according to one friend, she was, quote, done with the gangs. She was rebuilding. Slowly, yes, and she had missteps along the way, but it was clear. Jessica Chambers was ready for a new start, and she was ready for the future ahead of her, so long as she kept to the path that she'd envisioned for herself while at Leah's house. That's why, at the start of the first week of December that year, just a few months after she'd returned from Leah's house, Jessica's mother was surprised. Surprised when, the Monday of that week, Jessica came into the house in a huff, noticeably upset about something. Lisa tried to get her daughter to tell her exactly what was wrong, but there wasn't much Jessica would say. Her positive outlook had dimmed slightly in the last few weeks, and she had told her family something chilling. She was afraid for her life. On that day, though, even though Jessica didn't say much about what precisely had upset her, she did say this. Mama, these bitches think I'm snitching. It was a slow Saturday in Cortland, the sort of Saturday where you can spend the afternoon cozied up in a nap, which is exactly what Jessica did on December 6, 2014. That morning, she'd taken a drive with two friends and run a few errands, but by 12.31, she was back at her mother's house. According to Lisa, her daughter, quote, got in her pajama pants, piled up in a chair, and went to sleep. Sometime between 4.45 and 5.15, Jessica's phone grabbed her attention. Lisa hasn't ever been sure if her daughter got a text or a phone call, but something on her phone roused her enough from her comfortable position to get her up and moving. Jessica told her mother that she was going to get something to eat, but that she wouldn't be long, that she'd be back to clean her room. At 5.24 p.m., Jessica pulled into the M&M convenience store gas station, the only one in Cortland. Surveillance tape caught her walking through the parking lot, and she stopped at one point. She looks off into the distance and seems to wave to someone. She bends down to pick up a penny, and she then continues walking, heading into the store. There were three other men in the store, along with the clerk at the time, Ali Asani. He remembered that Jessica's order was different than usual. She typically just asked to have $5 of gas put into her car, but that evening, she gave him $14 instead. Purchase made, she exited the store, pumps her gas, and leaves, heading south down US 51. At 6.48 p.m., Jessica was still out of the house, but she made a call to check in with Lisa. Jessica was infamous for making phone calls while driving, so it struck Lisa as odd that, instead of the usual background noise, Jessica's call came through clear and crisp, almost as if she might have been with someone else and they were keeping quiet for the call. As they were hanging up, Jessica again confirmed her intentions for the night. Quote, I'll be home in a little while, Mama. She told her mother that she loved her. Lisa said the same. And then Jessica hung up saying, quote, See you in a little bit. Those would be the last words that mother and daughter would ever share. A little over an hour later, at 8.07 p.m., another call is made. 
except it's not Jessica doing the calling. Instead, Cortland residents by the name of Latroy Rudd and Glenn Williams, they make a call to 911 because there's a car parked strangely on the back road known as Heron Road, and the car is on fire. At 8.09 p.m., the first responders to the scene of the burning car arrive. By 8.12, the Cortland Volunteer Fire Department has arrived on the scene as well. One firefighter, Eddie Idenson, said that when they got to Heron Road, the car was burning intensely still, so much that you, quote, could feel the heat coming off the truck. No one on the scene had any idea what had happened. Many assumed that it had been some sort of accident since the car was noticeably off of the road itself. It seemed to have taken a hard left, and it was up on an embankment, nose to nose with a metal fence. But if it had been an accident, then where were the tire tracks? And why weren't there any marks on the fence from the car? There wasn't much time to consider what had happened to the car, as it burned ever brightly in the dark night, engulfed completely in flames, because there was something in the woods just beyond the burning hunk of metal. Something coming out of the woods. Several of the volunteer firefighters later testified in court that, at first glance, the figure stumbling out of the woods looked like a zombie. One even said it resembled more closely, quote, something off of The Walking Dead. According to Seth Cook, one of the firefighters, the figure was, quote, dazed, in a trance, and had trouble walking. Cole Healy was the closest firefighter to the figure, and he testified that the figure, quote, had arms out, coming towards me, and kept saying, help me, help me, help me. The figure kept walking towards the first responders, and it was a horrific sight. The hair stuck straight out from the head, almost like this person had stuck themselves in a light socket, according to one firefighter. The face was covered with black. Whether it was soot or charcoal wasn't clear. The body was clearly, severely burned, and almost all of the clothes had been stripped away, revealing how charred and leather-like the skin already seemed, with, quote, just black skin hanging off the body. Healy could see inside the person's mouth as they mumbled for help, seeing it was, quote, just charred black inside. Immediately, Healy said that they got the figure onto the ground, lying on their side. Someone noticed that the clothes hadn't just been stripped away, and the person was simply only wearing underwear, and they got a blanket to wrap them up in. Laying on the ground, curled onto one side, Healy knelt down, holding the person's hand, and asked them what their name was. He was confused at first. It was Cortland, after all, and as previously stated, everybody pretty much knew everybody. So he knew that there wasn't a Jessica Thambers in town. Nobody knew a Jessica Thambers, and some of these people had been lifelong residents of Cortland. They'd gone to school with each other, they'd grown up, and... And then he put it together. The figure, the zombie that the firefighters thought that they saw, this brutally burned body before them was Jessica Chambers. And she had been set on fire. Eddie Idson and Randy Davis began performing medical help to Jessica while they waited for the ambulance to arrive. Despite the horrors of what had happened to her, they noticed that she 
never complained of any pain, and she only shook in what they assumed was violent shock as they tried to help her. At least three times, according to Idison and Davis, they asked her, Honey, what happened? Hun, who did this to you? And each time, even as a, quote, piece of skin was going in and out as she tried to breathe, Idison, Davis, and at least 15 other witnesses that night testified that Jessica said, quote, Eric, Eric did this. Idison claimed Jessica said the name Eric, quote, clear as day at one point. The paramedics arrived soon after, and almost immediately, they realized that they needed to airlift Jessica. Panola County was not at all equipped to handle something this horrific, something this truly, truly bad. David Gamble, one of the EMTs, began setting up the area, creating a landing zone where the helicopter could eventually land. Around him, Casey Austin and Bradley Dixon worked on Jessica. Austin later testified that Jessica's injuries were so severe, they had trouble even inserting an IV into her arm. According to WMC Action News 5, quote, Dixon said Chambers spoke three words to him, but admitted that he had trouble understanding what she said. Those three words were, quote, Eric, cold, and thirsty. Austin spoke with Jessica as well, and he said that he too heard the name Eric mentioned, but, quote, eventually, all of her responses became whispered repetitions of, I'm cold. At 8.30 p.m., the Panola County Sheriff's Department called Ben Chambers. At the time, Ben worked as a mechanic for the Sheriff's Department, and he didn't know what to make of the call when they called to say that there had been an accident, that Jessica had been burned. Not knowing what else to do, Ben and his wife Debbie quickly got into the car and went racing down the street to Lisa's house. Debbie apparently got out of the car when they arrived and ran, ran screaming up Lisa's driveway that, quote, they set her on fire. Someone had left their Jessica, their blonde, bubbly cheerleader. They had left her to die on the side of a country road in the most horrific way possible. Jessica was later airlifted to a hospital out of Memphis, Tennessee, 70 miles away from her tiny hometown of 500. Over 93% of her body was burned, suffering from what Dr. Aaron Bernhardt called, quote, deep dermal to third degree burns. Burns so severe, there was, quote, no chance of the top layer of skin regenerating. At the scene back in Cortland, Eddie Idison, one of the first firefighters to arrive, he had determined within minutes that there, quote, ain't a damn thing we could do to help the girl who had laid before them. That determination of the outcome was mirrored by the doctors in Memphis. There was nothing, save for making Jessica comfortable, that they could do to help her. Just after 2 a.m., as the rest of the family gathered around her, Lisa told Jessica that, quote, if it was too painful, we'll understand if you need to let go. At 2.36 a.m. on December 7, 2014, 19-year-old Jessica Chambers took her last breath. Her autopsy, performed by the same Dr. Bernhardt, would reveal that the cause of her death was from soot and smoke inhalation, as well as the thermal injuries she suffered from her extensive burns. And the manner of death would be labeled homicide. Jessica Chambers had been murdered, 
brutally, horrifically. In a way, most of the firefighters and EMTs on the scene that night claimed that they had never seen before in their careers. And as far as Panola County law enforcement was concerned, everyone in sleepy little Cortland, Mississippi, was a suspect. At the top of the suspect list for Panola County investigators was anyone named Eric, and also anyone named Derek. From the get-go, the investigation into who had murdered Jessica Chambers was something of an exercise in oral history. As word swept through the town about the horrific violence that had taken place on the night of December 6th, so too did rumors and theories, born only in the way gossip in a small town can be. Rumors and theories would start to take on lives of their own. Some said that Jessica's voice had been, quote, clear as day when naming her attacker, as Eddie Idison, one of the volunteer firefighters, had put it, while others swapped stories that maybe she hadn't said Eric. Maybe she'd been trying to say Derek instead, but she couldn't because her tongue had been burned off. That last gruesome rumor about Jessica's tongue is, I can confidently say, completely false. But it highlights how all of these stories from the internet and in town built upon each other in a rabid, sensationalized manner. Of course, the social media firestorm that rained down on little old Cortland didn't help matters either. There were, quote, wannabe detectives from around the world who threw themselves uninvited into the fray, passing their own judgments down from social media platforms. Panola County needed to get a grip on this case quickly, as it had already garnered national attention for its brutality. So, on December 8th, two days after Jessica had been attacked, a special task force was organized. Sheriff Dennis Darby recounted in the Oxygen documentary about Jessica's case how, even in the first few days, the task force was able to interview between 30 to 40 people, including, quote, every Eric or Derek in Panola County. But none of them were credible leads. Four days after the attack on December 12th, which happened to be the same day that Jessica was buried, the first iteration of a reward for information was released, clocking in at $11,000. It rose quickly to $43,000. By January, the reward was offering $54,000 to anyone with information about Jessica's murder. And yet, the silence from the townspeople was deafening, even in the face of so much money, money that could easily be seen as transformational to someone living in Panola County. Put into perspective, the income for a Cortland family was about $35,000 around 2014. And as AJ, Jessica's sister, put it, quote, who wouldn't talk for $54,000? The answer was clear, but the reasoning for such tight-lipped silence was not. The people of Cortland, they were scared. They were scared and they were keeping silent. It was in the face of that silence that the rumor mill only spun faster. The devil works hard, but small town gossip works harder. Media as well as social media detectives, they played into the rumors that escaped from the confines of Cortland, 
almost with a sense of macabre glee. The stories of Jessica's rougher years of rebellion and her alleged affiliation with gangs through her boyfriends, they vilified her in certain social media circles. Had it been some sort of gang incident, retribution for some slight? What was interesting about this theory is how off the market actually was. Police shared that gang members throughout Cortland actually assisted in their investigation, that they willingly tried to help find any information about who had killed Jessica. But even those who were intimately involved with the gang scene in town, even they came up empty-handed. Or maybe the murder, maybe it was an entirely innocent, albeit devastating, freak car accident. Jessica's car, after all, had been found off of the road and it was perched on a small embankment, nose to nose with a fence. Maybe she'd lost control of her car for some as-yet-unidentified reason, and a small crash had ended in an all-consuming fire. But no, that was ruled out quickly as well. Were drugs involved? The rumors of Jessica having her life threatened were revived when friends of Jessica shared that a local drug addict, a man named Roger Lynn Hurt, had, quote, been mad at Jessica for a while. Allegedly, he threatened to kill her over a drug deal gone bad, but there was no evidence of his involvement to be found, and he actually died shortly after Jessica did, not before he had been cleared, though. On social media, Lisa, Jessica's mother, she was accused of having killed her daughter because Jessica refused to get her drugs. She has since adamantly denied both accusations, the drug-seeking and having killed her own daughter. So, the web sleuths and Twitterers turned to Ben. Ben had struggled with a meth addiction in past years, and he had served time in jail for his connection to the drug. And with the drug conviction under his belt... Keyboard sleuths wondered just how he had been able to land a job at the county sheriff department. People began to wonder if his history had come back to haunt him through his daughter. Or, on another vein, had Jessica's murder been fueled by racial tensions, by the fact that some people just couldn't stand that she had relationships with black men? All of Jessica's former boyfriends were interviewed, Brian Rudd, the one that Lisa had deemed as being, quote, volatile, he was alibied out early on since he had actually been in Iowa at the time. Travis Sanford, another boyfriend who Jessica may or may not have been seeing at the time of her death, he was also questioned, but he had a solid alibi as well, because he was in jail at the time of Jessica's murder. Still, some wondered if a hit had been put out on Jessica from inside the jail, but that theory has never carried more weight than its status as a rumor. George Mister, who goes by Boone, he was thrown into the mix as well and was taken into custody at one point during the investigation. Jessica and Boone's relationship was a mix of both friendship and sexual interactions, but Boone claims that their hooking up was in the past, and the two were genuinely and platonically friends by the time that she died. He claimed that he had seen Jessica on the morning of her murder and that she, quote, had a handful of crystal meth that she was trying to trade for cocaine. But when he saw her, he didn't have anything to trade that interested her. Their unique relationship and the timing of this interaction caught the attention of Panola County Police for a period of time, but Boone has since been cleared, though he maintains that there are those who still want to pin Jessica's death on him. 
Jessica's own parents, and particularly Ben, they were viewed with suspicion in the eyes of those who believed Jessica's murder had been motivated by race. Had Ben killed his daughter because he was so against her relationships? Hell, even Ali Asani, the clerk at the M&M gas station on the night that Jessica died, he was scrutinized by the public. He was the one who had released the surveillance tape of Jessica's supposed last few moments alive in a bid to be helpful. Instead, he only received suspicion about his possible involvement and threats against his own life to the point that he eventually left Cortland entirely. So many leads, so many possible people of interest, and yet they all seem to peter out into dead ends, flukes, and even lies as time crawled by. Over 150 people had been interviewed, and yet police still had no suspect. With only 500 or so people in town, everyone truly was a suspect, and it had begun to tear the town apart. Months went by, then a year. Still, no suspect, no charges, nothing to satisfy the town and the internet's desire for, as Chambers family supporters had started calling it, J for J, Justice for Jessica. And then, just over a year after Jessica's death, a suspect entered the scene. A suspect that the police had actually interviewed early on in their investigation. Someone who they had questioned at least five times, but had managed to fall off their radar. Quinton Tellis re-entered the spotlight. In the town of Cortland, the hotbed frying pan of tension and suspicion that it had become was about to leap directly into a roaring fire while the nation watched. Now, when I say that Quinton Tellis had been interviewed early on in the investigation surrounding Jessica's death, I mean early. The first time that Quinton was interviewed, it was only four days after Jessica's murder. Quinton was 27 in 2014, and he had just moved back to the Cortland area in October. He's been described by his sisters and mother as, quote, cool and quiet, thoughtful, and protective, though he's the youngest child in the family. He didn't have an easy time of it in school, and he dropped out in either the 8th or ninth grade, as he later told investigators. Instead, he found himself mixed up in a local gang called the Gangster Disciples, which is something that might have helped him release the anger that he occasionally burst out with. While involved with the Gangster Disciples, Quinton racked up a handful of criminal charges. He'd been charged with burglary and larceny. He had a charge of fleeing from a police officer. He'd been arrested for marijuana possession, and he'd also gotten himself a DUI. It was after serving time for those various offenses that, in October 2014, Quentin was released from jail and moved immediately back to Cortland, where he met Jessica. He'd only known Jessica for about two weeks before she died, but the two had quickly become close with constant texting, calling, and engaging in the preferred Cortland pastime together, riding around in cars. In the two weeks that they knew each other, Quentin had become, quote, a shoulder to cry on for Jessica, especially when things got tough at, for her at home. His sisters claimed that there had been, quote, plenty of nights spent crying where Jessica would show up at the Tellus house since she felt she just couldn't be at home anymore. Quentin told investigators that, yes, they'd had sex as well, but only once, 
It's simply been a one-off in Jessica's car, hidden in the long dirt driveway that led up to his family house. In any regard, Quentin and Jessica seemed to be on the road to being pretty good friends with the amount of time that they spent together in the two weeks since meeting. It was their friendship that first brought Quentin under scrutiny by the police and why they brought him in for his first round of questioning on December 10th. During Quentin's first interview, the police established his relationship with Jessica. He told them that he'd been with Jessica that morning, along with a mutual friend, Lakeisha Meyer. Lakeisha later testified that the three of them had, in fact, been together that morning, and that when Jessica picked her up around 10 a.m., she already had Quentin in her car. An hour later at 11, Quentin claims that's when he left Jessica, and that was the last he saw of her on that final day. Investigators wanted to know, though, as someone who seemed close to Jessica, what ideas did Quentin have about who could have done this to her? He hemmed and he hawed, but eventually he offered up two possibilities. One, maybe her father had had something to do with it. It was well known how Ben Chambers felt about Jessica dating black men, and Quentin theorized that maybe he had finally allowed his racism to crack through his parental duty. Another theory he had? There was a 25-year-old Cortland local, one who was on the Mississippi Sex Offender Registry, and someone who had been, quote, stalking Jessica, in Quentin's words. And this local was a guy named Derek Holmes. We'll come back to him. Don't worry. As for the strange burn marks that the police noticed on him, they had to ask before they let him go. Quinta claimed that they were from hanging out at a fire pit in recent days. Quote, I ran back to about the barbecue grill and I took off and jumped, Quinton said in the interrogation video. I made it, but at the end, like, I just fell back in the fire and they pulled me up. Given everything, it was odd. But at this point, the police were willing to let it go. After all, Quinton didn't sound anything like Eric or Derek. Quinton's second interview with Panola County Police took place three weeks later and went much the same. Except this time, he offered up an alibi. Quinton claimed that he'd been elsewhere 30 minutes after the fire had been set, but he was with his friends, Michael, Big Mike Sanford, and Taryn, Tudu Shigog. By all accounts, the alibi seemed to check out. And just like that, Quinton Tellis drifted off of the radar. That is until November 2015. Because in November 2015, almost 11 months after they had first spoken with Quinton, that alibi he had given investigators, it fell through. Completely. Because Big Mike and Tudu, the two friends that Quinton had told investigators that he was with at the time of Jessica's death, they weren't even in town at the time. Not even in the state. They were 275 miles away in Nashville. When they realized this inconsistency, investigators had to travel 260 miles away themselves to Monroe, Louisiana, because Quinton was in Monroe at the time, but being held in connection to a murder. Panola County Police caught up with Quinton in Louisiana on November 3rd and 4th, 2015, where he had been held since August, just a few months prior, in connection to the murder of Myeng Chang Shao, a Taiwanese exchange student. 
Myung Chang, known as Mandy to her friends, was a 34-year-old student studying at the University of Louisiana Monroe at the time of her death. She was said to be a quiet young woman, so it didn't seem out of the ordinary when her neighbors hadn't seen her for a few days. What was out of the ordinary was the stench those in the complex had started noticing and complaining about until finally a maintenance worker from the apartment complex was sent out to investigate. Neighbors pointed out the area which happened to be in the door to Mandy's apartment where the quote foul odor was coming from and it was there on August 8th 2015 that Mandy's body was discovered. It was clear the body had been left there for some time, and investigators noticed the, quote, superficial puncture wounds on her neck and chest, which seemed to suggest that, before she was killed, Mandy's murderer had taken the time to torture her before finally stabbing her to death. It was after receiving a tip from a neighbor that Monroe police first learned of Quentin Tellis. This neighbor shared that she had run into Quentin at the apartment complex, right near Mandy's unit, two weeks before her body was even discovered. What had struck the neighbor odd about the encounter was, well, everything. She hadn't really known who this guy was, but she'd seen him around on occasion, and she'd even seen him with Mandy. Once, she'd heard them arguing inside Mandy's apartment, and she'd since gotten, quote, a creepy feeling whenever he came around. When he started to grill the neighbor about Mandy, where was she? When had she last been seen? The neighbor was perturbed and also reminded of the strange interaction when two weeks later, Mandy wound up dead. This neighbor had had the foresight to take down the license plates of this man and the plates were registered to a one Quentin Tellis. We're about to delve a little deeper into this particular concept, but cell phone data and surveillance cameras were crucial in Mandy's murder case and they proved to become a key component in Jessica's as well. It was cell phone data that further strengthened Monroe police's suspicions that Quentin had something to do with Mandy's death, because the data showed that Quentin was, quote, within 200 feet of Mandy's apartment on the suspected night of her death, July 29th. Ten days after Mandy had been discovered, another technological tool connected Quentin to Mandy's murder. Surveillance cameras, specifically the one located at an ATM. It was on this tape that Quentin was seen using Mandy's ATM card and withdrawing hundreds of dollars. It was enough to bring him in, but not enough to charge him with her murder, as investigators in Monroe were beginning to stumble with their lack of DNA evidence at the crime scene, which was starting to look a lot like attempts to clean it had taken place. Instead, Quentin was charged with unlawful use of a debit card, and it was within a Louisiana jail that investigators had their third and fourth interviews with him about Jessica Chambers. During the two days of interviews in Louisiana, Quentin told much of the same story. He spoke about how he and Jessica had, quote, ridden around together the morning of the day she was killed. He shared that he'd, quote, given her $10 for food, then went their separate ways. He even discussed the fact that he had sold weed to Jessica that same morning as well, which was somewhat out of the ordinary since he admitted that he usually just gave it to her for free. And then came the, uh-oh, moments, according to Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, Agent Tim Douglas, as he called them. These, uh-oh, moments were holes 
inconsistencies in the story that Quentin was telling them on that November morning, and ones that he had originally told them back in the first few days after Jessica's death. Investigators said that now, when they pointed out the various conflicting details, Quentin would simply change his story. It was then that the investigators let the other shoe drop. They knew Quentin hadn't been with Big Mike and Tutu, because they had proof that the two men had been in Nashville without Quentin. He tried again. He said, actually, oh, he had borrowed Big Mike's car that afternoon, but investigators stopped him. They knew Big Mike's car had been in Nashville with Big Mike. I imagine that this is when Quentin started to get nervous, really started to panic and probably get scared. You can even hear it in his voice from the video of the interrogation. He gets emotional. He sounds like he's going to cry as he tries to defend himself from what they're clearly insinuating. In a cracking voice, he says, quote, I ain't never killed nobody. I don't got it on my heart. After two days in Louisiana, investigators departed back from Mississippi. And two months later, in January 2016, Quentin would be back in front of them. This time for his fifth interview regarding the murder of Jessica Chambers. Instead of crying, Quentin grew angry in this interview, though. He snapped, says that the circumstances surrounding his alleged involvement with Jessica's death, they're just a matter of, quote, wrong place, wrong time. Bad luck for certain. The police laid it out for him, bad luck or not. In the months since they had last seen Quentin, they had pulled piles of digital forensic and data to see what else might not add up with Quentin's story about December 6th. And there was a lot to consider. Not only had Quentin's alibi about being with Big Mike and Tudu gone to hell, but so too had his claims that he had last seen Jessica at 11 a.m. on December 6th. Because investigators, they had the cell phone data to prove it. That $10 Quentin had given to Jessica for food in the morning, not exactly how it seemed to happen. At 4.39 p.m., Jessica's phone records showed that she texted Quentin, telling him that she would go get food with him if he paid. In the span of five different calls between the two from 4.39 to 5.34 p.m., which was right after Jessica was seen on surveillance camera getting gas at the M&M, they managed to connect, and Jessica picks Quentin up. And effectively, Quentin Tellis has just become the last person to be with Jessica Chambers before she was set on fire. He storms out of the room at one point, shoving past one investigator and pushing his way through the door, grumbling, mumbling, angry outburst. I have to wonder if this outburst was because of the other, other shoe investigators let drop. Because in this interview, they shared that they had found the keys to Jessica's car that had been found abandoned in a gully on Main Street, about a quarter mile away from where Jessica had been left to die. And the investigators claimed that they had Quentin's DNA on the keys. It was the first piece of physical evidence against him. One month later, February 24th, 2016, the charges were filed. The state of Mississippi versus Quentin Tellis in the murder of Jessica Chambers. That my friends, is where I leave you for now with this Halloween week two-part episode. Feel a little tricked by that cliffhanger? 
don't be mad because I won't leave you dangling because here's a treat. Part two will be dropped tomorrow, Tuesday, October 27th. We'll pick up right where we left off, the start of Quentin Tellis's trial and the murder of Jessica Chambers. Except this case doesn't go nearly the way you expect it would. Because there isn't just one trial in figuring out who murdered Jessica. There's two. We'll discuss how contradictory both the defense and the prosecution's stories are, and the missteps of Panola County's police's investigation that get brought to light on the stand. We'll hear more from the first responding volunteer firefighters who were there on the night of Jessica's murder. And those same firefighters will introduce us to a whole new suspect, taking the courtroom by shock. There will be proclaimed innocence, circumstantial guilt, and even more hashtag questions than even I could have prepared for. So all that said, thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts so even more people can find out about Dark as Hell. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest in Spooky. There's a new Patreon level, and it only costs $1. You can support DAW and the work I do here for just $1 a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode, and you'll have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. This month's calendar of exclusive Patreon content for all of the different levels has been extra amounts of dark as hell. I don't want to spoil anything, but if you're looking to fill the rest of your October with extra dot and extra spook, head on over to patreon.com slash dark as hell podcast to check it all out. While you're waiting for the second half of this week's episode to drop, you can find dark as hell on Instagram at dark as hell podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at dark as hell pod, again, all one word. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasshellpodcast at gmail.com, or you can head over to darkasshellpodcast.com. So sit tight for now because I'll catch you back here tomorrow for the continuation of the darkest hell story about the murder of Jessica Chambers. Yeah.